to Food Love, the space between terroir and the Tao of food. Today's guest on our podcast is Christy Kissler. She is well known in our area for being an incredible community leader uh, with a deep focus on equity in our community and also land stewardship. She is one of the co-owners of Finn River Farm and Cidery, also the founder of Chimicum Center and also the Community Wellness Project, all of which have important roles in our community here on the Olympic Peninsula. Christy, I am so excited to talk to you. I consider you a sacred sister uh, because we have so many intersections along the lines of interest in the land, interest in equity, and interest in food. I think we both enjoy quality food and and also the arts. And I, I want to maybe start at a different place with you because one of the early conversations we had was around your early studies of Taoism. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Oh my goodness. Well, it's a joy to be here with you as well. And I'm just sorry we're not sitting together over a bowl of something delicious as we're talking, but um, I'm glad to be in the conversation from afar. Yeah, that would be awesome. Yes, early studies in Taoism, my goodness. Well, you know, I, I think I mentioned to you that I had the opportunity in college to take a seminar on the Tao Te Ching with a very influential professor who became a beloved mentor of mine. And I was quite young, and this text, as you know, is quite deep and rich and wide and complex, but I was very compelled by it. And I think I told you that I wrote a paper that I'm still quite proud of called the, the Tao and the Oat of Love. And I believe I was, I was sort of yes. looking at the, uh, the sort of earthy, the earthy, earthiness of, of, uh, of love, the necessity for a sort of earthy groundedness in love that was exemplified by the Oat and, and the Tao. And I was, of course, it was a play on words, uh, Tao and Oat. <laughs> so I was making a connection between the Tao and food early yeah. on, I suppose. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, that that to me, like when you told me that story, I was like, wow, we have to keep talking. Mm-hmm. And this, this podcast is kind of a nice place to have different conversations because we recently, uh, well, we recently served on the foods, uh, system, Food System Resiliency Task Force which was just like an organic outgrowth of, I guess, community-mindedness in Jefferson County um, mm-hmm. in response to the pandemic and trying to determine what needs were out there in the community and how we could be equitable in our approach to solving some of the problems of food insecurity during the pandemic. And I, I think I, you, you tell me, what that looked like to you, because you've been in this community for so much longer. Was that something new and different or like, did you just expect that to happen? I mean, that was 15 organizations. And I don't know that I would have been invited to that table if, if I hadn't known you (laughs) to, to, to begin the conversation. Yeah. Well, that was such an interesting time at the beginning of the pandemic. You know, I've been, as you know, we've been here sort of farming and doing food related endeavors for 15 or 20 years now. Yeah. So we've been in, mm-hmm. let's think about this. We've been farming in this County since 2004 and, you know, it's just been one sort of revelation after another about how community food system works and what the barriers and opportunities are. And we've been extremely fortunate to live in a community that has a lot of will 
to support local agriculture in the form of, um, you know, responsive markets and accounts, at, you know, eager eager consumers with the income to make that possible, investment networks, farmers markets, uh, you know, really a lot of systems in place that you would think would make us a really uh, resilient sort of local food system. But at the beginning of the pandemic, you know, you could feel at a national level and even international, this sort of sense of scarcity, it disrupted sort of supply chain and, and transportation issues and labor force issues and just the sort of the threat of the pandemic uh, is potentially impacting our ability to feed ourselves. And for folks who know our, our geographic region, we we live on the Olympic Peninsula, which requires in the sort of the primary route crossing crossing a bridge. And so there was often a metaphor of, you know, is the food going to still get across the bridge? And this is sort of the commodity, the, the high volume of commodity food that the community relies on, even though we have a lot of local farms, still the bulk of, of what sustains people, we were realizing is this commodity food that comes over the bridge. And my husband happens to be a grain farmer, as you know, and he had just purchased a mill, a stone mill, and was thinking about getting busy um, in the year ahead, producing flowers, local flowers, and making the grain sort of available to the food community. But he hadn't started yet. And we walked up there in one of the early days of the pandemic up to the barn, and I saw these huge bins of grain. And he said, well, you know, we're, we're not going to go hungry. There's a lot of grain here. I was like, honey, get milling. Right. We've got to get this uh, food out into the food system. And I think right. what was intriguing to me about that moment and why it spurred my interest in this task force was the idea that nobody knew that he had this barn full of, you know, hundred, I don't know, hundred thousand pounds of grain and that that wasn't common knowledge and, and that it right. wasn't part of a sort of conversation about self-reliance or resilience. So I started calling around to other people I knew who I suspected were asking the same question about, you know, how self-reliant are we in the event of a, of a commodity food sort of disruption, delivery disruption? And, uh, you know, a number of us coalesced around that question and started to ask that, that you know, ask those questions about self-reliance, self-sufficiency, what were the gaps in our infrastructure, who was and who was not getting access to local food and who was entirely reliant on other systems of food and how are we going to bolster those through this time? Right. And, and for me, one of the interesting things that I thought happened was at least my personal experience of it was the recognition that of the 15 different organizations represented by the leaders who were talking about food system resilience in that task force, it occurred to me that so many of them had very specialized knowledge around their pieces of the food system that ran, you know, it was knowledge that ran deep and that if anything happened to any one of them, there would be a different kind of know-how gap that, that could really kind of halt things for a bit. And so one of the reasons to even do the podcast is to begin to capture some of the things learned in some of those conversations around the food systems and, and even to archive some of the things that cropped up during the pandemic. We were specifically asked to provide recommendations on allocations of funds related to food system resilience under the CARES Act. And we we went through questions around how do we even look at what's out there? Like, how do we assess what we actually have 
in the community. And, and so Keith's grain was only one piece of like a multitude of different kinds of food products that were out in the community. And there was information held by another organization around the number of farms in the area and what they were producing and whether any of them would increase their volume of production or consider planting other things. And I think, you know, one of my perspectives was always like, well, if that bridge, you know, goes down, right, what do we have here? And, you know, if we anticipate this pandemic lasting longer and there is supply chain, you know, disruption at a different level, how how could we have more farms or more farmers producing enough types of food that could really provide the level of nutrition that we would would actually need, right? If we were really to try to live locally, is, is that even feasible? Mm-hmm. And we still don't know the answer to that, right? Mm-hmm. Well, I just, I, I think that in your question, a, a piece of it that became really clear to me uh, early on was that it actually wasn't just an, an agricultural food system. You know, we have aquaculture and we have you know, hunt quite a bit of hunting and gathering out here. We have foraging. And um, so there was sort of multiple strands of the food system. As a farm family myself, I, um, you know, tend to think that's the only source. So it was, it was a good exercise to sort of expand our sense of what the community food system is and think about the multiple resources we had. And we're quite lucky where we are, that it's a bountiful landscape and a marine scape, you know? So, mm. you know, I think we shared a sense that, mm-hmm you know, if we were organized, we could survive, but we certainly didn't have that organization in place. And there was sort of an apocalyptic vision, which is like, there's no more, no more food arrives from outside. And that, you know, obviously is a bit, a bit extreme, but it, I felt like it, it was a good test, you know, asking that question of what would happen if, if no bridge, no food over the bridge was just a good test of what we were attending to and what we were not. And as you're saying, what are farms producing, what are they not producing? And, and, what about four season agriculture and what about equipment cooperatives that allow more people to be productive? And what about processing equipment that we currently lack? All of that was revealed in that conversation. Right. Yeah. And, and, you know, we, we have records of that now. And I think the university of Washington has really kind of stepped forward to kind of hold those things, but, but the work of that task force is ongoing right? We kind of need to look at how we're using land, even looking at that intention with development of land for other uses besides agrarian uses, right? Like the level of development that's happening here for housing of a specific um, nature uh, means that those things butt up against each other, right? And there is a question that, that really became clear about succession planning for existing farmers and and whether what's being produced now will continue to be produced in the future. Well, I wonder if it might make sense to talk about um, Finn River and and how it's been in the community, really building a, a business model based on community from the beginning. Because when I moved here from Wisconsin, I was just, just floored, floored by the creativity of it, the innovation of it, and the different intersections to to use the arts and music and book clubs um, to foster community and share food and and beverage, basically, right? 
Yes. I mean, what, what was yeah. your origin story around why that? Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I've been thinking about this question because there's really a, a kind of primordial need that I think many of us have fundamental need, you know, to be social, mm-hmm. to eat and drink together. And I, I suppose I started to perceive the lack of that, uh, when we moved out to this part of the County, we had relocated, um, to the Port Townsend area, which is the sort of town, uh, small town center, you know, of this part of the Olympic Peninsula, sort of the urban, if you will, although it's a small town. But when we moved 15 miles out of town to where we started farming, we, you know, our town friends would say, what's, well, you know, so far out there, you know, their, their sense of where we were, you know, was way out. And there was just this sort of diffusion of a social center so in one sense, when we, when we purchased the land we're on and began farming here, there was a two acre patch of blueberries in the ground that had been operating as a U-pick. And we started, um, uh, you know, running the U-pick in the summers and of course seeing that hungry hordes of berry lovers would come out to U-pick gleefully and that this joy they would have at picking berries was, was a sort of communal contagious joy as long as there was enough uh, berries for everybody, mm-hmm. <laughs> that became a, a different mm-hmm. story, a different problem. <laughs> people were so joyful and there was this sort of sound of laughter in the fields and people talking to each other through the bushes and the plunk of berries. And it just seemed natural to sort of extend the party by saying, well, you know, now we need some music. And we ran a little summer series called Blueberry Jam and had musicians down there and created a little picnic area. And then, right. you know, once folks were sitting around you know, it sort of became this question of, uh, well, you should bring your picnic out. And, you know, that, that just evolved over the years to, uh, what later became the cidery model that we used, but that was really the origin of it was seeing, um, the sort of happy farm feeling and, and you pick is, an, is interesting because it is kind of a crossover between agriculture and some sort of wild foraging instinct, you know, that we have from way, way back. Mm-hmm. And, and I love seeing people get their own hands yeah. on their own. I thought that was really special. Like I said, when, when there was a lack or a insufficient supply, then folks would get ornery. And I felt like that revealed something about human nature as well, which is, you know, how, how we behave in scarcity, but there's a, there's a small apple orchard out back that our, um, our neighbor had planted and he was, uh, making some hard cider and, and gifted my husband a, a bottle who was completely uninterested in it because he's a beer drinker. And, didn't crack that bottle open until one day when there must not have been any beer in the house and discovered, you know, (laughs) another revelation opening the cider and discovering it was dry and complex. And he thought, wow, apples can do that. This was back before there was a a national cider revival, which has happened since then. Mm -hmm. And I uh, was a school teacher at the time. I was a little, a little nervous about sort of going into alcohol production as, as farmers and educators. It, It seemed perhaps like a, a strange uh, turn of events, but then um, I started to see what would happen when people heard we had cider. It, it it massively expanded the kinds of people who started coming out to the farm. It wasn't just the blueberry lovers; then it was it was the alcohol lovers, which is quite a broad set. It's not everybody, but uh, it was a <laughs> diverse, it was a real diverse set of people. And then I got to watch a similar thing happen that happened with the blueberries, which is people would put this liquid in their mouth, which is just, you know, fruit fermented, uh, and sort of undergoing the alchemy of, you know, the magic of yeast 
the alchemical fermentation and watching the sort of discovery people would have and that same kind of joy, joy of encountering earth's fruits uh, come over them. And, and then the same thing happened like with the blueberries. Well, if they're here anyway, let's have some music. Well, if they're drinking, we better have some food. Let's invite the Woodfire pizza fellow to come out. And um, one thing led to another. Yeah, it's it's quite a beautiful place. And um, I mean, it's been written about, right, as a like a destination spot. And I think it's because you have a chance to experience the land in such a wonderfully like friendly environment where it's easy to be, just be yourself and um, bring your whole family if you want to. And um, the kids have some place to play on those gigantic tractor tires. And um, I know my son just always wants to go there. When the pandemic hit, he was wondering like, can we go there? Can we play on that? Can I get some pizza? And you're always programming. Um, and, and that's a really interesting thing, right? Because it isn't really, I think the the education piece to your background creates a different kind of place where there's always some kind of event or programming that is helping people to expand their horizons um, in different ways. Like I know you have a, sort of a, a, a book club that is focused on racial literacy, right? One of the first things you asked me to do to, to see if I would come to one of the musical events in part because there was this challenge with feeling comfortable in the space that the, the performer herself had acknowledged that it, it didn't always feel welcoming out in the community because of certain effigies or something. Is that right? Or a noose hanging from something? I, I know that's a not an easy thing to talk about, but like to create a circle of connection to support people in, um, in their own skin, you know, performing and doing what they do. Goodness. I'm not sure exactly. I mean, I, I know what you're referring to, which was that incident in quill scene, but I, I don't remember how that led to us, to you coming over. So I don't recall what event that is, but I could talk, you know, well, let's see. So first, I didn't you come know, over at that point. I couldn't make it. I just knew that you were doing something different because no owner of any food business or any hospitality business that I had ever come in contact with through my entire time as an associate dean or as a chef instructor ever talked to me about doing something like that. And it really reflected to me that you have um, just broad compassion um, for people from many different backgrounds and that you intended to do something both personally and professionally about mitigating some of these uh, spaces um, in which people don't have a sense of belonging, that that the full purpose of of the work of your business, even in translation with food and beverages, is really about belonging and, and I would say even belonging to the land itself, because everywhere you eat in the outdoors there, you, you can see the orchard, you can see the herbal gardens that are being cultivated by a local medicinal herb um, producer. There's so much connectedness just in the landscape itself. Um, and I just thought that was a really unique thing that you, that that was an early conversation that we had. Um, and I feel like your current work through the Chimicum Center is is maybe an outgrowth of some of those feelings that sort of brought those things to the forefront of conversation for you. 
Do you want to talk about the Chimican Center? Yeah, well, can I go back? <laughs> There's so much that you've just um, <laughs> doing a wonderful job uh, reflecting what is going on. For, I mean, I want to go back to where you mentioned book club and then work forward from there because I think, yes, we did. You know, I do have a background as an educator and I've always been interested in how we could celebrate the culture in agriculture, use our, use our facilities, use our infrastructure and our space to uh, bring people together to, to raise consciousness and expand our interconnectivity. Those are, those are very strong sort of mission, core mission elements of Finn River. And I think uh, a few years ago, we launched a, a social justice and science fiction book club, which was um, hmm. such an interesting exploration. And then uh, we branched off and offered just a uh, kind of a racial justice book club, nonfiction. And um, as those conversations sort of continued, you know, that created an opportunity to learn more about where people were experiencing racism in the community, where people of color were experiencing racism in the community, where uh, white folks had sort of uh, barriers and blind spots and denials. You know, it started opening up these this much more honest, I think, set of conversations about the work we had to do as a rural Pacific Northwest kind of um, colonized, you know, territory. And that has just grown ever since then into a sort of, ongoing effort on our part to understand barriers to equity, you know, problematic sort of systemic racist patterns that we've sort of participated in or upheld unconsciously. And and then to look for ways to shift that dynamic, which is not easy in an ideologically diverse, you know, area that has been entrenched in some ways of thinking for a while. So uh, the arts program that you referred to, and I, bringing in, you know, musicians and trying to work, create an inclusive sort of arts program. Yeah. Has, has led to some uncomfortable encounters, some moments where we felt like we were sort of pushing against something sort of ominous, you know, sort of toxic, but the, the community keeps coalescing. Uh, I feel like in really positive ways mm-hmm. around this idea of transformation and Finn Rivers just keeps looking for opportunities to support and nourish that. Uh, you know, and then as far as the, the connection to the land and the connection to each other, you know, we, we've talked a lot about connecting people to the land and more, more acutely, we lately have been more acutely questioning this sort of um, maybe oversimplification of that statement to say, you know, reconnect people to the land because different people, depending on where they're coming from, have had such different pathways to or away from the land. You know, I'm thinking of the sort of trauma of mm-hmm. uh, enslavement and the impact it's had on, on black communities and their relationship to agriculture. So we've just sort of tried to deepen our comfort in the nuances of that question. And, and rather than sort of imagining that we've figured out the way to do it, you know, understanding that there's many ways and we have to keep creating wow. new pathways for that. So yeah, if you're, you know, if you can come, to Finn River and eat and drink and, and sit out there in the fields, that's wonderful. And, you know, if you're an urban person, maybe who doesn't have a car and you can't drive two hours out to the peninsula, you know, how do you have this, how do you have this connection? So, you know, we're trying to keeping it real too, by thinking about who has access and who doesn't. And, and you do it across the board. I remember during the pandemic, you, you maintained an insider space, a virtual space for people to kind of gather and do some of the same things virtually that they were doing um, in person prior to that. And I think that there's something about that that just spoke to me that um, it sort of helps when 
when a place like Van River is an anchor in the community, kind of reminding people that there are still kind of threads of connection, even in times of, you know, extreme uncertainty. I, I think the the level of groundedness in identity, like what, what does Fin River really stand for? Mm. You know, I think your mission kind of continued to kind of hold people in a really delicate and maybe even fragile time for some. So I, th- I thought that was pretty amazing. We did try uh, insider. The, the insider space was a pun on cider, of course, because we are producers of hard cider. So we were playing off that concept, but thinking uh, that we were literally sort of all on the inside. You know, we had, we've gone from a sort of mm-hmm. the ability to sort of be external people and, and interact with the world to really having to hunker in. So that was another another play on that concept. And yeah, that worked. That felt like an important offering for a while. And, and certainly we've seen how there's a bit of a kind of a virtual event burnout happening. Although I've also seen the virtual event modalities getting more sort of interesting. <laughs> so, and, and, and I think we're getting new tools yeah. for figuring out how to gather virtually, but yeah, that was, it felt important. Such a fundamental piece of our business was just sort of pulled out from under us. So we've, we've definitely been scheming of ways to keep growing that sense of community. And, and I think that did lead to the formation of the Chimicum Center, as you were mentioning. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I think one of the reasons I really wanted to have you as a guest was for people to understand like the level of creativity in the vision of, of what Finn River could be for a community beyond just making income, making revenues from the sale of cider you know, each of the the vendors who have offerings for food there, they're they're there because it's community space. It's not just you, you Finn River selling food, right? It's Dented Bowie, it's um, the Crepery Place, right? It's many of the different food trucks that come in periodically, and so it is a more collaborative and open space than. It is a competitive space in the food industry. And, and to me, that's like innovative disruption. Don't you think? Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't, I don't really see people doing that uh, across the country except for in festivals, but they're, it's different. It's different. It's not the same kind of activity. I think uh, maybe not, uh, not as much for private enterprise, although, we, you know, the urban food courts are really starting to capture that spirit, you know, where there's a block in, in Portland, you know, where there's eight food trucks parked in a circle and there's picnic tables in the middle or there used to be anyway. Mm. So, but yeah, we, <laughs> we're always amused trying to define uh, what we do because technically it's an organic farm. It's also a licensed winery. And then it's sort of this, uh, you know, commercial kitchen and food service, but it's also a food court. And we also do lots of events and, um, education. And so, yeah, we, we, you know, we are, um, we are a, a business, but really feels more like a community center. And, and that goes back to why we felt compelled to create a, a sort of nonprofit branch off of Finn Rivers, because we realized so much of what we were doing was, you know, wanted to be community service and how could we set ourselves up to be able to do more of that. And, and then the, the structure that you're finding that it offers you more flexibility to be able to do exactly what you would like to do at this point? Well, you know, uh, let's see. So Finn River, you know, in the aspiration to be a sort of socially conscious, ecologically conscious business, 
you know, we pursued organic certification and salmon safe certification and, and B Corp certification. So we could sort of pursue this triple bottom line, people, planet, profit, you know, sort of balanced business model where we were, mm-hmm. you know, uh, how do they say it? Uh, do business as if people and place mattered and be a force for good in the world. And all of that is very real for us. I mean, we are trying to run a, a thoughtful, conscientious, caring business, and it is still a business. And as lots of my radical friends have been reminding me for years and instructing is, you know, capitalism is fraught with sort of some irredeemable and problematic, you know, patterns. And so, you know, and, and, um, so at the same time, we're very proud of having created the business we have and, and so providing a lot of, of rural livelihoods for our crew. So, you know, and, and trying to constantly improve those livelihoods by adding benefits and making them more stable income. So it feels really important to run a viable, vibrant, thoughtful, caring business and to do the community service and not sort of uh, undercut too deeply, you know, the bottom line for the business. We realized we would um, uh, benefit from having um, a nonprofit that could receive funds in different ways. So grant funding, membership funding, uh, tax deductible donations, and so on. So it, we feel like the formation of the Chimicum Center was an attempt to uh, just really create more opportunity for community um, service-oriented projects, grassroots projects that kind of converged or sort of operated at the convergence of, of equity, ecology, arts, and agriculture, and also basically be a, a resource redirection service, especially for you know, local BIPOC-led initiatives that are, you know, gaining traction in the community and um, can benefit from collaborative support in whatever form they ask, you know, and and also trying to create a kind of, um, you know, a coalition, a, m- a multiracial inclusive coalition of organizers and activists and um, community sort of uh, agitators, I like to say, because it has the word ag in it, which makes me laugh, um, you know, creating <laughs> coalition space nice. for, for projects to emerge that mm-hmm. will kind of get at some of those deeper intractable issues around barriers to land access and, and lack of food sovereignty for certain communities. And also that just general disconnects people have from, from their sustenance. And of course there's a, you know, for those of us who, who are lucky enough to live on the land and, and food producing soils, you know, you, you get constantly reminded that you're literally sustained by the soil. You know, it's, it's, it's sort of become a, a hip kind of notion in social media, but you know, we just don't survive if the soil doesn't thrive. So kind of making that relationship visible and accessible to, you know, as many people as possible. Yeah. And, and your, your work with um, Woodbridge farm, is that through the Chimicum center or is that you personally? Oh, you know, it's such it's a small town, so we're all always wearing all of our hats. You know, <laughs> you can't really, uh, mm, right, uh, right, yeah, together. yeah. But Woodbridge Farm, so our just south of Finn River, is a uh, well, actually we're surrounded by multiple small farms. It's a glorious little agriculturally uh, a neighborhood of agricultural renaissance where we are. It's all former dairy land that uh, actually is former uh, Chimicum and Squalum uh, indigenous land, and you know all a beautiful kind of Chimicum Creek watershed and prairie, but, you know, converted over a hundred years to dairy farms and then converted over the last 20 years to small scale kind of diversified family farm operations. And um, just South of us, our neighbor, Peter Mustin uh, and now his business partner, Cameron Jones are 
getting Woodbridge Farm off the ground. And they are uh, uh, Black farmers who are kind of committed to creating a space that, you know, celebrates their community and agriculture. And it was also a haven, I think, for BIPOC people to, and youth in particular, to, to find uh, that connectivity that has been so important to them. So watching them work to get a farm off the ground just, you know, reminded me in some ways of what it felt like for us to get started, but also was different in a really jarring way in that, uh, you know, I was noticing that we had access, I think, to sort of systems of privilege and networks that weren't necessarily visible. And, uh, you know, I became very interested in like how these sort of networks of access operate and uh, interested in Lucas, do you want to pause for a second? Because people who haven't met you might not know, you know, can't assume what your um, background is, your race or your ethnicity, whatever you care to share. You're right. Thank you. That's important. Okay. So I am a uh, 50-year-old white woman farmer of um, ambiguous sort of European, you know, lineage so far back that it's been, um, you know, unhooked from my reality. And... um, Mother of two kids, married to white man farmer who grows grain and whose family's grown grain for, you know, five generations in eastern Washington. So came from economic privilege, I think, and had lots of opportunities for education. And and then, you know, moved here with just a, with with a sort of enough generational wealth to sort of leverage what we had, you know, to buy property and then to to sort of ride the real estate market and sell that property and have enough to put the down payment on the farm. And then, you know, to have uh, lots of local investment available to us and, and uh, USDA grants and, you know, the, the systems that were supposed to work for farmers were working for us. But it's it's been clear from mm-hmm. an equity analysis of the food system in America from the very beginning, it was sort of, you know, broken because of uh, sort of the origins and the, you know, enslavement of our, you know, first agricultural workers really. And, and now the sort of ongoing, the, the language is it sort of becomes a challenge, but sort of the, yeah, the ongoing oppression of, of food workers, my immigrant farm workers, and, you know, just a sort of highly either neglected or, or sort of abused uh, agricultural labor force. So, you know, it's just fraught in so many ways. And I'm, you know, as you can hear, sort of continuing to analyze and learn and understand, you know, how to, how to speak about it, how to look it in the eye and face it and understand it. And then to measure that against the opportunities that we've had and then figure out how to uh, redirect resources and start thinking more seriously about mutual aid and reparations and challenging and restructuring the systems so that they are more accessible. So all of that's a mouthful to say, you know, he's a fabulous guy. Uh, and deep passion for flowers and specialty poultry and uh, but had a lot of uh, costs, uh, costs on his property, the high cost of relocating a bunch of debris and years of sort of uh, previous occupants garbage that had piled up and a, a broken bridge and um, a lack of some uh, utility infrastructure and just, you know, watching what he's facing there and just figuring out how to be a good neighbor to him. And so, you know, on a personal level, the the question of how to be a a useful neighbor to him, and then on the kind of community organizing level, thinking about uh, what kind of challenges and barriers are being revealed that could be addressed with some 
initiatives. And Shimakum Center uh, has just hired a BIPOC land access advocate to sort of start to address those uh, issues in our community. Yeah, and I, I think that is novel in a community to actually name and designate someone to focus on those things. And I think that that would probably be one of the things I would ask listeners to think about, right? Like we as a community or a number of us in the community are really actively talking about reparations. And I know that's happening across the country in North Carolina as well. Um, but this is not some faraway notion or, you know, some, some theoretical piece of life. It's, it's active at this point. And I think you helped to kind of create the GoFundMe campaign and leveraged your own networks to, to assist in being a good neighbor, right. To kind of change the dynamic of 400 years, just with starting with your own personal relationships around you. I thought that was pretty remarkable. I actually took, you know, took my cue from the organizers at the um, Jefferson County Anti-Racist Fund. So this is a grassroots uh, mutual aid uh, or network locally that really sort of taught me how to think about mutual aid and how to think about redirection of resources. And have they have run some really successful campaigns. And um, yeah, so so I feel like they they were sort of my introduction to how to do that work. And then we, you know, sort of have networked with them and the uh, Black Lives Matter, Jefferson County, and other local anti-racist and uh, organizations that are sort of ch- challenging. I think the community to really think about how change happens. And and uh, I think I was in a conversation recently with a food equity activist who said, you know, well, land is really the north star of this work. You know, land ownership. And I do think there's. Mm-hmm you know, a lot of work ahead to look at, you know, innovative land ownership models like collectives and cooperatives and, you know, many of those things that are being explored around the country. But, you know, so I I think that thinking about how to, you know, redirect land is going to be the really, really big hill for us to climb together, especially in an area where real estate is becoming sort of Mm -hmm. hot and properties are racing off the market with cash only offers and, we have a shortage of affordable mm-hmm. housing. Right. And the, uh, the unintended consequences of that is that we, we lose the ability to preserve agrarian land. And that just changes everything about the Olympic Peninsula. I mean, we've got like such amazing, amazingly strong land trust and land works collaborative organizations that really are active in this area preserving lands for different purposes as part of stewardship. But this, you know, very targeted piece around agrarian use will require more novel thinking because uh, the housing crisis in this area is, is something that has to be solved in order to have the, the labor force to be able to operate more of those farms that we would like to see around us right? Moving towards a more resilient food system here. And, you know, I, I want to say that, you know, it's been through our conversations where I've decided to, you know, get my own license again to practice law. And I was (laughs) removed from the practice of law. You know, I did corporate biotech out in Massachusetts and I saw this, you know, I'd heard um, from you that someone would be retiring and, 
you know, that these complex, this complex approach to easements, easements um, that were really about protecting the environment, you know, that there might actually be that sort of knowledge deficit happening if there was no succession plan for who, who's going to take up that mantle. And then apart from that, a number of people had, had asked me after hearing that I was an, an attorney, Hey, can you do some leasing for us? And, and it seems like there are just not enough attorneys on the Olympic peninsula that people have to drive an hour away and they're paying very high costs for some simple transactions. And I thought something's not right about this. So here, you know, I'm applying, even though I, I already have licenses in New York and Massachusetts and Georgia, and I thought I would never practice again, but it makes sense because in some ways that advocacy piece around the land goes hand in hand with the stewardship piece. And there is something to be lost if, if we don't actually do something about it and put the pieces together you know, help people to navigate the systems. You know, we have a number of BIPOC people telling us they they want to own land um, and they're just struggling not to navigate, but to kind of come up with the resources. But oftentimes it's it's the ability to leverage resources that come into contact with you. And in, in your network, Christy, has just been vast. I mean, you are you know, out there in the community often. And I think you told me a story once about getting approval for something. And it was one of those things that were the struggle. Was it around water rights or something? Yeah. I'm not too sure. Yeah. I just thought that was such a telling story because I thought to myself, you, you know, that's not just dumb luck, right? <laughs> that somebody would help you. It's the cultivation of relationships. And part of privilege is, having had the education to kind of walk in those circles with ease and to be able to know what to say, to move, touch, and inspire people to want what you want, right? But if you've grown up in a way where that isn't the norm, right, that, that you have to work hard for everything that you, you receive, it's hard even to ask. It's hard to navigate because you're not even too sure that you belong in that room with those people who hold the gates to the next step forward. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, yeah. I mean, that's a, you know, there's so much there in, in, um, you know, that I can't speak to directly, but I, but I do know that I would often go into those sort of investigations or those quests for resources, really assuming it would work out. And I, and I think that that has been an interesting thing for me to confront, you know, I just sort of assumed, Oh, you know, I'm going to apply for a USDA grant and my application will be treated fairly. And it's a pretty good one. And so, you know, maybe you know, we'll probably get it. So, or actually that's not true of USDA. There's a lot of competitive, but you know, I, I didn't, I certainly didn't have, I had a system working against me and a system of bias and a system of um, sort of denied access. So yeah, it's, um, you know, that goes back to that conversation about how to make those networks and visible. Yeah. It's, it's been amazing to watch how you've grown, you know, these outward manifestations of the things you care about in this community and what you care about in the land itself and how different products and, and, um, you know, the bounty of the land is shared with other people. I know that the community wellness project itself ran a neighborhood loaves campaign selling a, a whole 
a loaf of bread at regular retail prices, maybe top dollar using the Finn River wheat. And then uh, people could opt in to buy a loaf for a neighbor, for someone in need during the pandemic. And I just thought that that was such a beautiful program. And I really do love the breads made by Finn River. The quality of what you offer people is, is just amazing you know, the bouquet, I, I don't drink a lot, but <laughs> it turns out I, I really, really enjoy Finn River cider and the the different kinds of ways that you combine different flavors from cranberry and rose hips to, or the cranberry and hibiscus to habanero and, you know, apples in cider. It's, it's just been exciting to play with. Chefs in the area have cooked with it. Uh, you've been host to um, the Jefferson County Farmers Market's videos for cooking with local ingredients. And I, I think there's probably nothing that you have said no to when it comes to the community and helping people connect with, uh, with food from this place um, or, or products of this place. Um, and I, I really just want to say thank you for that. You know, probably that's one of the, the most important things, you know, for our community to recognize is that you have been doing this work, you you kind of, I, I'm sure it's not effortless, but it seems like it as if, you know, you kind of wave the wand and like magically 15 organizations appear. And I know that was a number of different people and um, University of Washington in particular, but it, it is your ability to engage people in those conversations that will make this place different than all other places when it comes to food, farming, and maybe that feeling of belonging, like there's an extended family. And, and I wonder, like, what is it to you that you came here? Because you spent time elsewhere. You spent time in a lot of different places. And how did you land in the Chimicum Valley? Well, yeah. And I do just, I mean, listen, I got to give credit to my, to my partners and the Finn River crew and the whole farm community here. You know, this is definitely, it's definitely been a a community endeavor, you know, to, to create Finn River and to just, you know, help be part of this sort of food system expansion and, and blooming here. But yeah, you know, I, I had um, a very cosmopolitan uh, and worldly mother and she had four children on four different continents. I, you know, I was the American kid and um, she raised me partly in, in California and partly in New York City and kind of at various places in between. You know, I think that my my introduction to sort of the potential for an agricultural life came in um, college when I got involved in uh, kind of environmental organizing and particularly uh, uh, had, had a good friend who was involved in Campus in the Biosphere, which was a, an effort to link uh, campus food service to regional farms. And that was when I first heard someone kind of question, like, you know, why are we eating food from thousands of miles away, you know, when they, when the sort of expenditure of energy to do that is sort of a net loss for the world, you know, even though it gives you calories, it sort of takes so much energy to make that kind of food system happen. And that, that was a very compelling and concerning question. And I went on to do environmental education in a national park and met my husband and then got a, a degree in education and did my master's thesis on school garden project in Seattle you know, and all of those things just kept compounding this, this sense that, you know, if you're lucky enough to have a relationship with wild nature, which many people don't, if you're lucky enough, you know, then, it, then you sort of, you get the medicine of that relationship, you know, you, you, you get that 
advantage and that blessing of a connection to the earth. You know, if you don't have that access, you know, a garden, you know, is, you know, a really, you know, appropriate sort of alternative and could, could be more widely accessible to sort of many people, not all. And kind of what it's, what it's like to see kids witness the, the whole process from planting a seed to pulling out a carrot and that mm-hmm. magic that they get to participate in. You know, we have a whole industry around like the ma- magic, ma- books about magic, fantasy books. You know, I'm a lover of these books. Mm-hmm. Really, this process of growing food yeah. in the ground is very magical. <laughs> you know, it's just magical. Mm-hmm. And, and you, you do yes, this, you do these, is. you do these processes of sort of planting, you know, work in the soil and planting and weeding and harvesting. And then there's something sweet or something juicy or something tangy or something crunchy. And you put it in your mouth and it becomes your body. I'm sorry to lecture. You all know how this works, but watching yeah. children discover that and, <laughs> yes. and even uh, seeing people discover it, which is something that happened with the cider, you know, this sort of idea I had that the cider was like a magic potion and people would drink it and be reminded in this sort of like glimmer of sparkles that this was this was the fruit of a tree, you know, that grew in the crust of the earth. And how lucky we are to be on a planet where this happens. You know, it does not happen on Mars. This is the one <laughs> that we know of in the cosmos. This is the planet that produces right. apples <laughs> and pineapples and avocados and blueberries and, <laughs> and all the rest. It's a true, it's a miracle. And, yeah. you know, I think we have to keep asking ourselves how to make that, that accessible to, to more people, how to restore that sense of blessing and bounty in the, the process of eating, you know, and, and there's so many equity issues in, in how that transpires, but, you know, so I, you know, I'm just tr- tremendously grateful each time I sit in front of my plate and I'm really trying to, uh, properly cultivate that gratitude practice because it fuels my compulsion to, to, to organize and work for that experience for more people. Hmm. Yeah, that's beautiful. That really, I think, is part of the essence of what we mean by food love. It's that union, right? That union of of um, thought and spirit around um, sharing the bounty, right? And recognizing that the whole system has to work for every part of it to thrive and be enjoyed. So I wanted to ask you, now, you know, I've been... Uh, kind of mulling this about in my my head and and speaking out loud to this idea of what what if we brought back home economics and and actually here we're pretty lucky um, because the the public school systems really have beautiful programs around cooking for students but back in the Midwest where I had moved from about three years ago I, we were seeing less and less of those types of programs in in different places and you know I I grew up with a neighbor who used to come home with all these great foods made in home economics class. And I thought, well, what if we tinkered with that? And what if we began to explore whether children could be taught about equity and diversity and a sense of belonging by studying other cultures and eating foods from other places to, to be makers um, and creators of dishes to share collectively. And obviously it's the pandemic right now, but I've been playing with this concept of food zooms and wondering, you know, could, could we do that? And and what would you provide into this curriculum? Because I think you're such a forward thinker and a visionary. You know, what what is the dish that you think children could access easily that 
would just be aligned with this concept of food love, right? That we appreciate the land. We, we see that space between terroir and the, the Tao food, that oneness with the whole system and ecosystem. Well, I mean, it, this is really a question for you because you're such a, such a chef and, and, uh, you know, I'm not actually a skillful cook. So it's a great shame for me as a, a person who lives on a farm and is surrounded by incredible <laughs> bounty of food, but I'm, I'm not such a good cook, but I will say that in looking at the, uh, the Chimicum schools has a wonderful, um, food program and they're developing, um, the school garden programs at, at all levels and really, um, looking at how to build on the kind of agriculture and culinary resources of this community. And in fact, just before the pandemic, the uh, high school was able to acquire a um, food truck through a um, partnership with a local nonprofit mm, right. and uh, was just getting ready to think about how to launch that. And in fact, that would have been an opportunity for the kids, to, and it will be, it will be an opportunity for the students to do what you're saying, uh, which is kind of develop meaningful mm-hmm. menus and work with and, and understand sort of the you know, the, 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 the depth of the local food system by working with uh, local suppliers and, and producers. So I will say that there's a, a longtime Chimicum uh, kind of diner called the Chimicum Cafe uh, that is uh, somewhat renowned regionally, maybe world renowned for their pies. And um, mm-hmm. to, to, there's mm-hmm. something iconic about that. It's not something I've learned to master yet, but my husband, who is the grain grower and now the grain miller, has become a baker. Mm. And uh, he, you know, he'll bake off a loaf of bread. And I think, oh my gosh, this man grew this wheat, milled this wheat, and just <laughs> baked it. And now he's eating, you know? And it, this was not remarkable, you know, yeah. several hundred yeah. years ago, in, in, at least in grain growing regions. Uh, but for us, it's just such a sort of bizarre and fantastical phenomena to witness. So um, we're, you know, we're quite oriented right yeah. now around things you can bake. And because we're also fruit growers, anything that involves uh, grain and fruit is a sort of um, very appropriate concoction for our our little piece of land. But, you know, we're happy to see yeah. a pretty wide variety of sort of cu- culturally resonant foods from this community. You know, we have we have a wonderful variety of restaurants and, you know, get to see the local food kind of work through dishes from, from all over. So uh, I'm a very happy and satisfied eater, not such a great preparer, but that knowing, knowing the hands that grew your food is, you know, it is a privilege now. I hope it's not as much of a privilege, you know, as we continue to sort of repair food system. But I I guess I should also mention, because I know if, if, uh, some of the people I know who work in the food system were sort of listening. They might say, well, yeah, we can't, you know, we can't feed everybody with these sort of tiny micro, micro diversified family farms, you know, and small acreage here and there, you know, there are many billions on this planet that we're trying to feed. So, you know, I I don't feel like this is the only solution, this model that we've worked our way into, you know, there's got to be solutions at all different scales. Yeah, we're glad to be farming and eating here. Yeah, yeah, and you know, I've I've said this before, but the, this soil produces just such exceptional produce. You know, the likes that I I really haven't tasted elsewhere, and it, it is very fortunate to to live in this region to be able to eat such vibrant fruits and vegetables, and and to have it just growing. I, the the first summer we arrived here. We just thought we had landed in the Garden of Eden. 
<laughs> we're like, it must have been here. Yeah. Um, the blackberries were all in full ripeness. And, you know, we walked along all these different trails, the Cappy's trails, and or some we just gobbled them. You know, we hand these blackberries over to him. And it was just such an exceptional experience of being able to gather, you know, with without thought. And yeah. and that that's a really lucky position to be in. And and it it hasn't been lost on us that, you know, these lands belonged to the Jamestown Sklalem tribe and the Coast Salish peoples. And 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 that was life, right? That was life at one time. And so there there is this complexity here. And you know, when we when we think about restoration and reparations and things like that, that we, you know, there's a a, a broad net to cast in terms of helping people reclaim their 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 places and their sense of belonging and and inclusion. So I I feel that you've you've just broadened my horizons in every conversation that we've had around any of these issues and and I and I wouldn't ever hold it against you that you don't cook that much <laughs> because or to cook things that you would claim for contributing into curriculum because I have seen you eat with such happiness and only, only like in photographs of late, because, you know, when we gave you that quince paste, n- nobody but you sent me a picture of you eating it. <laughs> yeah, that was, that would really, that epitomizes, well, just that such succulent, that quince paste, this is a shout out everybody for Rufina's quince paste, because it was such a sort of succulent sort of congealed <laughs> mouthful of just the sort of you know, complex sort of tart, you know, bountiful flavors, you know, of the planet. I mean, what a, what a joy that was. <laughs> I made that last as long as I could, yeah. um, but yes, thank you. And I just, to what you said about, um, what you said about sort of in the indigenous food systems, you know, I'm, I'm happy to know Macronell, who is the, um, maybe now the coordinator of the traditional foods program, uh, at Jamestown Slalom tribe and he's also a cider maker he and his partner Jaden have a um mm, cider they're starting in Sweden, two hooligans so we've had chances to work with them um on the oh. cider front and then also he was uh, kind enough to come to the Chimacum high school and do a session with the foods class on traditional food systems and the teacher later told me that yeah, a max session with the students was one of the most um kind of inspiring and activating for the for the for the students that they were really really fascinating, mm-hmm. you know, that there was a, uh, you know, a societies and civilizations that sort of fed themselves, you know, from the landscape. And mm-hmm. it's pretty exciting to right. see men kind of carrying on and, and building up that program to keep that, uh, all that cultural knowledge, you know, growing, growing strong. So he's on my list to contact because you yeah. had mentioned him before. And just this past summer, uh, we had the experience of just you know, tracking like the berry picking in the area, like the thimble berries and the salal berries and making different kinds of jams or sauces from them. And and there's just so much bounty and, and there's so much medicine out there in the forest that, you know, it, it is, it is wealth to know how to use the the products that come naturally in this region. And, you know, you know that you've been sort of supporting uh, that level of programming and the the sharing of that knowledge is is just outstanding. 
Oh, well, just, just, just happy to know people who know how to procure food. You know, my neighbors, I live in a, in a little rural at the end of a rural lane. And I have a few neighbors who are um, hunters also and fishermen. And, you know, I trade anything for, for some elk, (laughs) some some salmon and uh, Mm -hmm. when people go and get mushrooms. And so, yeah, you have so many good conversations to have Rufina with people uh, around here who are helping to sort of explore what is our terroir and lots of different ways those relationships are sort of rooted for, for folks, you know, in terms of how they are sustained and um, the activities that sort of bring them that joy. You know, my neighbor Reed, who's a fisherman, he would not think of himself as a foodie, but he sure does love to go fishing. And I'm sure it takes a whole lot of pleasure in Mm. the salmon he eats. So yeah, thank goodness for having a mouth. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) right, right. Yeah, that and and a a certain level of health, right? And, And I think that does come from kind of, you know, being discerning about, what what comes in. I really want to thank you for for being on this episode just to share some of the things. I think for so many like the idea of having a food business, you know, when you're starting on that path, it's hard to know where it will end um or how it will grow or how it will expand. But in my own vision of things, I do feel like, you know, Finn River, I can imagine it growing in and having like incredible distribution. And if the sense of community can follow it where wherever it goes, you know, as it expands, wow, wouldn't that be a lucky thing for us as a whole, as a country, even, right? Like if the fourth of July isn't just isn't just beer, not that beer is bad. I, I grew up in Wisconsin. Yeah. Just that if everyone were drinking a cider, you know, and talking about the aromatic notes and eating the food and um, thinking of the farm and imagining the orchards and imagining that sense of belonging um, or feeling it in, in the community in which they find themselves. Like that, that's really, that's really food love right there. Mm. So hopefully we'll see, see more of this and we'll see more businesses operating like Finn River because it would be such a different place if, every food and beverage or hospitality destination sought this way, right? You're being very generous with us, Rafina, and I'm, I'm so grateful. And I, I feel like you've, um, you sort of see the best of us and it's, you know, we have a lot to learn and there's so much, um, there's so much new good. I actually, it's not, it's like new old thinking, you know, like regenerative ag- agriculture and, um, new, new sort of thoughts about, uh, no-till and, and, um, different kinds of strategies now, you know, we, we feel like we're constantly learning and we're happy to be part of it. And so glad that you're here to um, enjoy it with us and, yeah, and affirm too. and challenge. So yeah, thank you for inviting me into the conversation and for being such a good you know, comrade in this ongoing yeah. appreciation for and, and uh, kind of restoration and healing of our food system. So thank you. Mm, thank you. So uh, that is Christy Kissler from Finn River Farm and Cidery, Chimicum Center and Community Wellness Project. She is one of our area community leaders, very civic minded and an exceptional visionary around food and our connection to it. Much of her work really seems to demonstrate to me the power of food love, that space between terroir and the Tao of food. Thank you, Christy. Thank you. 